Thank you. Good morning. This is, as you just heard, Competitive Energy Supply Regulation and Litigation in 2020. My name is Lou Dundon, and I'm the co-chair of the Environmental Litigation Committee of the Environmental Law Section of the Boston Bar Association. And we're sponsoring this panel along with the Energy uh, Committee as well. And I want to thank everybody for joining us today. We have three fantastic panelists with us who have a wealth of knowledge about all sides of the debate surrounding the individual residential competitive energy supply market, mouthful. And I'm really looking forward to hearing their thoughts. And so I will introduce them now. Our first panelist is Joey Lee Miranda, a member of Robinson Cole's Environmental Energy and Telecommunications Group. Her practice focuses on all areas of the energy industry, including litigation, transactional re regulatory representation, and counseling. She regularly participates in proceedings before the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities and other state agencies. She also handles administrative appeals of agency decisions to state court and counsels clients on complex regulatory compliance matters. Our second panelist is Alexa Rosenblum, a senior attorney in the Consumer Rights Unit of the Greater Boston Legal Services. Alexa joined GBLS in 2012 after clerking for a federal judge, and she has practiced consumer law since 2015. She specializes in debt collection defense, foreclosure prevention and defense, and consumer protection work. And our third panelist is Liz Anderson, an assistant attorney general in the Energy and Telecommunications Division of the Office of Attorney General Maura Healy. Liz's work focuses on ratepayer advocacy, including litigating electric, gas, and water company rate cases at the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities and enforcing sewer protection law in the residential electric supply market. Since joining the office in 2013, Liz has worked on several civil investigations of electric suppliers for violations of consumer protection law, and she has advocated in various venues for additional transparency and oversight of the residential electric supply market. I want to thank all three of you for taking the time to, to take part in this panel for us. And for the audience, you've heard that, that um, your microphones will be off, but you can type questions to the Q&A. I will try and collect them and we'll try and save five or 10 minutes at the end and I will try to get them answered for you at the end. So with that, I will turn things over to Joey Lee to start the discussion. Thanks. Thank you, Lou. Welcome everyone. Thank you for being here. I'm just gonna give a brief background about electric restructuring for those who may not be familiar with it before we get into uh, the substance of the issues. So in 1997, Massachusetts legislature determined that it would benefit uh, the ratepayers of the Commonwealth if they were to restructure the market. And essentially what that uh, entailed was allowing others, uh, others than the utility, to generate and sell uh, electricity. And so they ordered the utilities to sell off their generating facilities and opened up the market so that retail suppliers, which will be the focus of this discussion, were able to sell power directly to consumers in the state, or the Commonwealth, excuse me. Um, just a little bit of background about the difference between a utility service and a supplier service. So um, when receiving service from a utility, it is pursuant to a tariff that is approved by the Department of Public Utilities. It includes approved rates that they are permitted to charge consumers. Uh, when buying from an electric supplier, however, the consumer enters into a private contract with that supplier on terms that the two uh, agree upon. Um, the uh, Power that is sold by the supplier is then delivered by the uh, electric distribution company or the utility. They're essentially now a wires company. Um, with respect to the utilities, they have a captive customer base. Every ratepayer is required to, uh, if they want electric service, to deal with the electric distribution companies and the utilities. Um, whether or not to choose a supplier is really a choice uh, that consumers can make. And so uh, in order to obtain customers, however, retail suppliers then must go out and market in the, in the, um, 
in the market. They must go out and do, conduct marketing activities and obtain customers and acquire customers. Uh, once the customers are acquired, they uh, are billed for their service. Um, it can be done in one of two ways. Either they, they can receive one bill or two bills. Uh, two bills would be one bill for the supplier for the supplier's charges and one bill for the utility for the utility's charges. Under the consolidated billing option, the utility would issue the bill and both the supplier charges and the utilities delivery charges would appear on that same bill. That is the way that the vast majority of residential, if not all residential consumers uh, receive their billing is through a billing statement issued by the utilities. So why did Massachusetts restructure the electric market? And you know there were a variety of reasons that uh, came into play, but one of them was to try to provide benefits to ratepayers. And what we are going to talk about today is the, are those benefits and whether they've been realized. Some would say that the main benefit and only benefit is a cost savings. Others would say that there are other benefits that can be provided by the market, including innovative products, additional renewable content, et cetera. And so with that and that brief background, I'm gonna turn it over to Liz to talk a little bit about the things that she's been doing in the market. Thank you, Julie. And the environmental and energy law section for having us here today to talk about the various legal issues surrounding the competitive energy supply market. Um, at the outset, I just wanna confirm, I think Joey Lee and Lou already touched on this, but our work at the Attorney General's office really focuses on the individual residential aspect of the market. And that's um, what my, just my talking points will focus on. Um, we do not cover commercial and industrial customers who might sign up for competitive supply um, or other groups of customers who may purchase electric supplies such as municipal aggregations. Um, I'm talking today about the individual consumer who signs up their household for electric supply, either because they got a knock on the door or a phone call, an advertisement in the mail, or saw an offer on a website. So um, for the first decade or so, the market was fairly quiet from a consumer protection standpoint. But starting around 2011, we began to see complaints at the EGO. In between 2013 and 2019, our office received over 1,300 complaints regarding this industry. Common complaints about suppliers that we receive include false representations of savings on the electricity bill, misrepresentation of utility affiliation or affiliation with a state-sponsored program, switching a person's um, account to the supplier without their authorization, which is also called slamming, taking advantage of persons with an inability to understand what they were signing up for, either because they were elderly or did not speak English as a first language, aggressive sales tactics. So for example, door-to-door you know, -door conduct, which included coming back to the door again and again until a person relented to sign up. Do not call as violations. This include um, this including robocalls, spoofing, using caller ID numbers that would include, for example, the Eversource, um, an Eversource number instead of the actual supplier's number. So this is a little bit of what we have seen from consumers reporting to our office about their experience with competitive suppliers. And at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Alexa to talk a little bit about some of the complaints that she's been working on um, with her clients at Greater Boston Legal Services. So yeah, hi, I'm Alexa. I'm, um, I work at GBLS, I'm a legal services attorney, and I've been doing some work in this area for about the last two years. Um, I, as you heard from my intro, I do a whole wide um, variety of work, and this is just one piece of it. Um, but 
done quite a bit over the last couple of years. And it's really been because um, of community need for some work in this area where people were complaining about the same types of things that Liz was mentioning. Um, uh, where we were seeing people, especially people um, whose, whose first language wasn't English, uh, who realized they were signed up for competitive supply um, after the fact when they looked at their bills um, and saw they had gone up and, and didn't understand why. Um, so, for example, people thought they were dealing with uh, their distribution company, like Ever, the utility, like Eversource or National Grid, and then realized after the fact that they had been signed up with a competitive supplier. Um, Oftentimes when, when the bills had escalated and gotten higher and they had showed a service provider and realized they were on, um, had a different provider. Um, I was at a community event once that actually the attorney general's office put on where they had encouraged folks, elders, it was elders in Somerville to bring their own bills um, to understand their bills. And a woman at the meeting realized during the meeting by looking at her bill that she had um, a competitive supplier. Turns out she had had it for several years and not realized it um, in a conversation once where she was told she would save money, didn't understand the implications of what happened in that phone call. Um, and that's really not uncommon based on what I've seen that people um, haven't realized that they were switching um, suppliers. Um, and a lot of folks with limited capacity particularly for example i worked with um, a mother daughter where the mother had dementia um, and her daughter and who handled the bills realized a few months later that there had been an in-person conversation door to door where this woman elder with dementia had been solicited and signed a contract um, without knowing what she had done um, and have her complaints similar to that. Um, so really the sorts of things that Liz uh, has found through the AG's office has identified have been very consistent with what um, I have found working with individual consumers in this market, whether knowing what, um, and then just people who, who knew what they were getting into in the sense they, there are some folks that knew they were dealing with another entity but um, were promised savings and never realized those savings. Um, and in fact, lost um, a, a lot of money when you compare what they paid with the competitive supplier versus what they would have paid with um, their normal distribution company. So that, back to you, Liz. All right, thank you. Um, so what did we at the AGO do in response to these disturbing complaints? First, we started to issue civil investigative demands under our Chapter 93A authority to investigate unfair or deceptive acts or practices. In late 2014, following a civil investigation, we settled with a supplier, Just Energy, for about $4 million, with the bulk of the money flowing back to customers. At the time of the Just Energy settlement, there was some hope that it would act as a deterrent for other suppliers. Unfortunately, that was not the case, and we continued to receive high numbers of complaints. As a result of the complaints and our findings in our 93A investigation, we commissioned a report to investigate whether this market was saving consumers money as intended. We also wanted to look at data on the rates suppliers charged low-income and non-low-income customers. 
and we wanted to look at the zip code level data for one month each year so we could see where the suppliers are and whether their rates changed by location. Our original report on this data was released in 2018, followed by an update in 2019. We have updated the numbers for 2020. However, the 2020 report has been somewhat delayed by current events, but it should be released soon. For the four years of data that we have studied thus far, we found that consumers in Massachusetts who signed up with the supplier lost $340 million when compared to the basic service rate they would have paid had they not chosen a supplier. These are net losses, so they include any savings that the consumer may have realized. Um, we also found that about 500,000 households in Massachusetts participate in this market, or about 20% of all residential electricity. When this overall participation number is broken down by income type, we found that 33% of all low-income customers participate in competitive supply, whereas only 17% of non-low-income customers participate. So non-low-income is um, anyone who doesn't qualify or who is not receiving the low-income discount rate with their um, distribution utility. Further, zip code level data that we had showed that residents in minority and low-income communities were more likely to sign up and more likely to pay higher rates than their neighbors in wealthier communities. Our data from 2018 to 2019 shows that majority minority communities have higher participation rates and are charged on average higher rates as compared to the other communities in the state. The data also shows that the communities with a top 20 median income have lower participation, participation rates and are charged on average lower rates as compared to the other communities in the state. Our rep reports found that low income customers are hit particularly hard low-income customers are charged, on average, rates that are 20% higher than the rates suppliers charge non-low-income customers. And the average annual household loss for a low-income customer is $196 versus $187 annually for the average non-low-income customer on competitive supply. Our reports made it clear that the individual residential electric supply market has not been saving customers money as intended. Indeed, as Alexa pointed out, many consumers were losing a lot of money. Based on these findings, coupled with the numerous complaints that we've received over the years, the Attorney General decided to recommend that this part of the electric supply market should be eliminated by lawmakers. In January 2019, the Attorney General sponsored legislation to prevent suppliers from signing up new individual residential customers. Um, in addition to this legislation, which is still under consideration by lawmakers, our office will continue to collect and analyze data to provide a better understanding of this market and inform what we do to address some of the harm that we see. We will also continue to investigate suppliers for alleged violations of 93A. In addition to Just Energy, which I mentioned earlier, the office settled with Viridian Energy in 2018 for $5 million, most of which was returned to customers. Last year, the office settled with Platinum Advertising, a third-party marketer who conducted door-to-door -door marketing on behalf of several suppliers. As part of the settlement, Platinum agreed to stay out of Massachusetts for one year. The office sued Starian Energy and several of Starian's third-party telemarketers in Massachusetts Superior Court in late 2018, alleging violations of Chapter 93A and Chapter 159C, the Commonwealth's telemarketing laws. Earlier this year, we secured default judgments against two of the telemarketers in that case, 
and the judge assessed damages in the amount of approximately $14.5 million. We are currently negotiating a settlement with Starion following a year and a half of litigation in both the Massachusetts Superior Court and the Delaware Bankruptcy Court. Additionally, <laughs> we will participate in the new investigations launched by the Department of Public Utilities into the telemarketing activities of suppliers Mega Energy and Palmco Energy, also known as INDRA. We're also participating in the Department of Public Utilities ongoing investigation into initiatives to promote and protect consumer interests in the retail electric competitive supply market. Indeed, the department recently issued an order in that docket with a variety of new rules and requirements for suppliers operating in Massachusetts. It's a hundred page order, so I don't have a quick summary for everyone, but needless to say, it is thorough. And we have asked the Department of Public Utilities to open a new proceeding to implement protections specific to low-income customers. We believe that the need to protect low-income customers is particularly urgent right now with the COVID-19 crisis. So many residents are out of work and struggling to pay their bills. Making sure the bills are as low as possible is critical to helping people keep their electricity on. And that is some of what we are doing in this area from an AGO and repair advocate perspective. So I will turn it over to Joey Lee to give her perspective on this issue. Thank you, Liz. Um, so the issue from the Attorney General's point of view and um, Boston Legal Services is that the higher price necessarily results in consumer harm. And um, if evaluated fully though, however, you'll see that that is, um, there is evidence to the contrary. For instance, uh, many consumers receive something other than plain uh, power with their uh, service with a, with a electric supplier. There are a variety of services that they receive. For instance, um, if a customer were to stay on utility service, their price would only be fixed um, at that at that rate approved by the Department of Public Utilities for a period of uh, six months at a time, depending on which utility service territory you're in, that when that change occurs varies, but it is basically a six month price. Many suppliers offer residential customers a longer term fixed price so that they have budget certainty. So for instance, I, let's say for that the, um, uh, basic service price is 10 cents. That's the price charged by the utility. And that price is good for six months. It is possible, and I'm, I'm making up numbers. These are not real offers that are out in the world right now. I'm just uh, uh, speaking hypothetically. Uh, it is possible a consumer could buy a 12-month product from a supplier for 10 and a half cents. And to that consumer, that budget certainty may be the most important thing. And in fact, for many low-income consumers, budget certainty is their biggest concern because they want to understand what the price is that they will pay for a longer period of time. Um, in addition, there are many uh, products out there offered by suppliers that offer something even more beyond that and other values. For instance, there are products available that offer green or renewable content that is higher than what is uh, the mandatory minimum in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. In other um, uh, types of product offerings, there are things like uh, warranty products um, where uh, consumers are provided a warranty product for their um, HVAC systems at their homes. Or it could include uh, energy efficiency measures such as a Nest thermostat or something along those lines. 
And the attorney general's report doesn't take those into account because they don't have the information necessary to make that evaluation. And so there are many values and benefits that are offered to the residential consumer that are beyond price. In addition, a higher price necessarily does not mean that the market isn't working. If you think about any other product you can buy in a competitive market, there are always price differentials. If you, for instance, look at Verizon and AT&T versus T-Mobile and Sprint, Verizon and AT&T have about 67% of the market, but their prices are significantly higher than T-Mobile and Sprint. Doesn't necessarily mean that there's a problem with what Verizon and um, AT&T are doing. It is simply a normal functioning of the way that a market operates. Other things you can look at, for instance, are mortgage rates. Uh, consumers pay varying mortgage rates depending on when they sign up for a mortgage. In fact, in 2018, the difference between a fixed and a variable price mortgage was about a 19% price differential. Yet, that's how the market operates. It is a competitive market. People are free to contract and enter into agreements with consumers. Um, and consumers are free to enter into contracts with retail suppliers that are um, beneficial on a variety of grounds. And they do not always have to be uh, specific to pricing. I think one of the things that uh, has, has um, held back the development of more innovative products is the, somewhat the policy and somewhat the practical realities of how the electric system works. So if you think about telecommunications, for instance, um, 20 years ago, before the Apple iPhone, um, people were like, well, really, what is what is tele, uh, telephone deregulation got us? Telecommunications deregulation got us. We have a lot more people out in the market, but what's really happening? What's being offered? And then the smartphone came into existence, and then iPhones came into existence, and there were changes in policies and how the markets were regulated, and that allowed for much more innovation and freedom of contracting and innovation to occur and allow um, things to move forward. This industry is somewhat different because you can't really have electricity without wires. You could do distributed generation uh, and people do take advantage of distributed generation um, and do have solar, for instance, installed at their homes, etc. cetera. Um, but for the most part, wires are necessary to get the electricity to the consumer. So the suppliers and the utilities must work hand in hand. And there have been policy decisions made for whatever reason, not only in the Commonwealth, but elsewhere that have impacted the ability of suppliers to do more innovative product offerings. For instance, many consumers now look to their iPhone for a million things. Um, data is sort of rules the world. Well, currently the way the electric system is set up Suppliers actually don't have direct access to consumer data. They have um, access to some consumer data, but not all of it, not the same amount the utilities do. In addition, as smart thermostats get, uh, excuse me, smart meters get rolled out throughout the Commonwealth, more and more data will be available to the utilities and to the consumers to help them make choices. That needs to be available on equal basis to suppliers in order for them to be able to offer innovative products because the more they know about the consumer and the way the consumer consumes electricity, the better they can uh, target um, product offerings that meet an individual consumer's needs. Um, with that, I will turn it over to Alexa uh, to talk a little bit more about what she's seeing in the market. 
Sure. Um, so I have been, as I said before, working with individual clients who have been affected by this market. Um, I have, as not would not be surprising, um, a little bit different perspective of, of this than Joey Lee does, um, closer to Liz's perspective. Um, and I just wanted to, before I, I talk about my specifications, mention I don't agree with the the description of um, the telephone market as a good analog because with the telephone market there is different service and different networks. So a Verizon customer has a particular network, like you see their network map versus AT&T's or another one. Um, you get the exact same electricity and gas in your house no matter who your supplier is. The exact same network. Um, so I, I do, personally don't see that as an apt um, comparison. Um, if I'm in one place um, and have AT&T, it, it may work. Um, Verizon may not work in that same place. Um, you're getting the same um, electricity and gas regardless of your supplier. The actual supply is the same. Um, so, um, and for my low income clients, a price difference is, is everything uniformly every single one I've talked to, the reason they might change suppliers knowingly or as is often the case unknowingly is price. That's what motivates um, my clients um, to make decisions whether as, and I say knowingly or unknowingly because a lot of them switch without realizing they were switching suppliers. Um, uh, as I was talking about before. But let me talk about this one case I've been involved with. So I've only litigated this in one case. I have approached and settled a number of cases where I have alleged um, consumer protection violations on behalf of clients, um, either general protection violations were under the um, unfair and deceptive prong of 93A. And then also there's some very good attorney general regulations in this area. Um, that I should know this site offhand, I'm sure it does. They're at 940 CMR 19, um, which I'm sure Liz could give you them in her sleep. But <laughs> uh, as, as I do a number, work in a number of different areas, uh, I cannot do it in my sleep. But um, those regulations have been a large basis of all that I've done in this area on behalf of consumers. Um, whether it's been writing demanding demand letters, and, um, I've said oh, says my internet connection is unstable, so hopefully that's not affecting how you all are hearing me. But um, so um, those regulations uh, impose specific requirements on supplier competitive suppliers, and also just define certain actions as unfair and deceptive in this industry. Um, all right, Lou's telling me I sound fine, that's good. Um, so for example, some information, like accurate pricing information, needs to be in a written contract in at least size 10 font. Um, and then, um, you know, accurate pricing information needs to be disclosed, um, information about what, whether somebody has default service, that is service with the utility, um, needs to be disclosed in writing in at least size 10. Um, they're not allowed to use misrepresentations about a relationship with the distribution company. Um, there are a number of regulations. Um, so I, 
the one piece of um, litigation I'm working on in this area um, is a putative class action. We haven't been certified, so I'm not going to call us a class action yet, call it a class action yet, but it is a case that I initially brought on behalf of one consumer um, whose name is Rafael Fuentes, an El Salvador um, immigrant from El Salvador, very low income, works as a parking attendant. Um, he had somebody show up in his door in some Somerville, which happens to be actually where I live as well. Um, and uh, at the time, he had Eversource as his has distribution company and supplier. And he was his his Spanish is his first language. Um, he speaks a little bit of English, but Spanish is his preferred language. Um, I can when I communicate with him, it's either in my broken Spanish or more often through an interpreter. Um, and uh, he was told he would somebody was checking his bill and that they would verify he got the lowest rates. Um, about a year later, he realized he had this other company as his supplier, SFE Energy. Um, I forget honestly how he came to me. I think a service provider um, referred him to the National Consumer Law Center. Knew I was interested in taking um, individual cases in this area. Um, and um, when I looked at his contract, so he actually had a copy of a written contract that he didn't understand what it was. Um, he doesn't read English for the most part. Um, and, you know, I mentioned a minute ago these AG regs that say certain things have to be in size 10 font um, and in tiny little writing, which I did my best to figure out, but I think it's less than size 8 font, was certain pricing information. Um, for example, said that he would have, there is a $4.95 a month um, additional fee um, for, uh, for that supply with that provider. So with Eversource, never had any sort of supplies, you know, charge, um, $4.95 a month in addition to, um, so he had been locked into a three-year contract with certain monthly rates for electricity and gas. Um, and um, those were higher even with two-month teaser rates. So this particular company um, does three three-year contract with two-month teaser rates at the beginning that are lower than the the contract rates. Um, the teaser rates at the time he was signed up were actually higher than Eversource's rates at that time. Um, and um, in analysis over the, I think, two years he was signed up, um, there wasn't a single month that he saved money. So um, over the two-year period, uh, every single month he paid more than he would have. And that's not even counting the $4.95 a month additional he was paying. Now, he has very low income. Um, so losing even a small amount of money a month is really um, has had deep implications for him. Um, and then when he tried to resolve this himself, he found out there was this termination fee um, for leaving the contract, which was also in very, very small font in this contract in English that, um, you know, even an, as a lawyer, I have a hard time parsing, to be quite honest. Um, and so initially I brought this lawsuit on behalf of him, um, alleging that, um, that SFE Energy, this one particular company, had violated um, 93A and the regs that I mentioned in their contract. Um, and the company moved to dismiss the and brought it on behalf because the issue is as much with the contract 
um, as what happened in person, uh, brought it up on behalf of him and a class um, of other consumers that were signed up in door-to-door -door solicitation with that contract, which I believe violates the AG regs. Um, SFE moved to dismiss it saying, oh, he knew, you know, it's in the contract. Like, you know, he knew what was happening, da, 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 da. Um, we amended the complaint and added two, um, we'll have, you know, slightly different facts, but the same contract. One is, um, one of the, neither one is Ellie is low English proficiency, but they were both promised sort of savings, never realized it of the people, um, that I mentioned during the entire period signed up, there were one consumer on one of them, meaning electricity and gas, saved money, very small amounts of money for two single months. Otherwise, uniformly, they lost money, and these are all low-income individuals. Um, and um, all promised that they would save money. Um, and then, um, and then two out of the three were told, essentially led to believe um, through misrepresentations that they were affiliated with the distribution company. Um, the third realized it was another company, but um, the only reason he switched was he was told he would save money repeatedly. Um, and in fact, um, paid a lot more money. Um, so that is sort of the basis of that class action lawsuit. They have, move to dismiss our amended complaint. Um, who knows what's, when we will actually get into court on it, given everything right now. Um, but we are, we are actively litigating that. And, um, you know, uh, I personally strongly believe that they violated 93A um, in multiple ways. Um, I know they, they have a different view of things, but uh, <laughs> that is that is how I, I see it. And I, I think this case sort of typical of, of what may happen in your interactions. Um, you know, there, what, what I see in this case, which is what I often see in other cases with, is they, they trumpet out, they have recordings, their party verification call that usually happens in this, these door-to-door -door sales where uh, to confirm authorization, they get this third party on the phone, um, supposedly independent to verify that somebody has signed up for the company. And you know, as soon as I send my 93 letters in these cases, they, they send me a copy of the recording and said, say, you know, your client knew exactly what's happening. We have the recording saying, this is, you know, what's gonna be happening, this is a price and all these things. Um, and uh, I, I, my view on those calls is they're very manipulative. They're very basic questions, not waiting for answers. Um, like for example, a client I mentioned earlier who was the elder with dementia, if she was between the age of 18 and 75, she gave her birth date, which indicated she was in her 80s, kept on going. Did not respond to the fact she was 85, kept on right on going. Um, we also know that these cold calls are often manipulated. Um, the DPU complaints um, against the two companies that Liz mentioned recently um, had the allegation, including from a complaint that was um, started by a DPU employee 
um, funny enough, uh, alleges that his call was, the recording was completely manipulated and wasn't what actually happened. So um, my view of those verification calls is they mean they're worth nothing. They're not worth the, the uh, recording or whatever, the, the data that the recording is on, the space on your phone or uh, the recording is on. So um, that is, I think uh, we're about out of time for me, but um, uh, I think there was a question in the chat, which I'm sure we'll talk about more, whether you know it's just a few bad actors or the whole industry. Working with consumers, I tend to have the view it's the whole industry and very supportive of the AG's legislation, but I know Joey Lee has a very different view of things. Um, so um, I honestly forget in my outline who's is going back to if we're um, going back to anyone or we're at questions. So Lou, maybe let me know where we're at. Alexa, I think um, uh, I'm supposed to talk briefly about the DPU um, because the, D the Department of Public Utilities, which has been re uh, referenced in our discussions, did just issue an order um, providing for additional consumer protection initiatives to go into place. Um, those include um, things related to the third-party verification, uh, the way in which door-to-door -door marketing and telemarketing should be conducted, et cetera. So a few things just generally about uh, the, the market. As I talked about before, it is a, it is a market and um, there are different prices. And you know, um, Alexa mentioned that essentially it's the same electricity, um, whether the consumer buys it from a supplier or from the utility. As I noted before, a couple things. One, uh, it can be green when it, it may not be green from the uh, utility. It could include other value-added products. In addition, if we want to talk about um, markets in which even if there were no differentiation that occurs. Uh, we have looked at in, I work with clients in a variety of jurisdictions, um, including Massachusetts. And at one point uh, in a Connecticut proceeding, we looked at the home heating oil price differential. And uh, in, a, in a single month in the region, there was a $2 per gallon difference between the highest and lowest prices for home heating oil in a region. Again, price differentials occur all the time in the markets. With respect to the DPU, the Department of Public Utilities has, as Liz pointed out, first of all, that residential choice was not very active in uh, the Commonwealth until um, in the 2010s and beyond. Um, and so for a long time, the DPU didn't need to take action because there was, there was nothing of general concern that uh, was being expressed by the Attorney General or others in the market. I uh, disagree that it's uh, all marketers. I think that if uh, that were the case, you would see a very different um, wave of class action suits, lawsuits, et cetera, uh, investigations and so forth. And I just do wanna clarify when Alexa was speaking, everything she spoke about uh, from her perspective and the DPU's investigations are allegations. They have not been proven. They are allegations brought by the DPU that there was an alteration in recordings. They are uh, um, allegations brought by Alexa and her team on behalf of her clients. And so there is, you know, always the um, allegation versus the proof of what's actually occurred in the market. Um, I think with that, I will actually give some time because it looks like we have a good number of questions unless Liz has any closing remarks. Um, turn it over to Lou to start going through the questions. 
Uh, Liz, do you have anything or you just want me to start on the questions? No, I think I think I will go. We can go right to the questions. I mean, we're going to address some of the stuff, I think, in the questions. We actually have a lot of great, great. questions. We have nine now. Um, so let's see how many we can we can get through. I'll just start at the beginning. If we've covered something already, we can skip it. Um, so the first question is, if you do two bills, this is a technical question, what happens if a customer pays only one of the bills? Who has the right to seek collection and who may cancel electric service for non-payment? I don't know who. So I guess I could, Joey, if you don't mind, I'll take that one. So if, um, is this in the case of two bills that they say? If you do two bills? Yeah, yes. if, if the customer does not pay the supplier's bill, then in that case, I believe the supplier has the right to seek collection. Um, but I do not believe they can cancel the electric service. I, there are a lot of DPU regulations in place for when someone's electric service can be cut off. And I think that that really has to go through the distribution company. So um, is that your understanding, Joey Lee? Yes, the utility is the only one that has the ability to actually turn off uh, someone's or disconnect someone's service. Um, a supplier does not have the authority to do that. They can terminate their agreement after uh, uh, complying with certain notice requirements. They can terminate their agreement with the consumer, but they do not have the, the ability to disconnect the consumer. Thank you. That's great. Okay. Um... The second question, I think, goes to the heart of what everyone's been talking about. So um, I don't know if people want to just take a, give some brief thoughts on it so we can get to some of the other ones too. But it's, are there just a few bad actor competitive suppliers or do you think the majority are using questionable practices? I imagine we'll hear both sides here and I know <laughs> Alexa's starting to touch on it. So um, I don't know. I, I don't know who wants to go first. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go first. Um, I would say that reason why we um, recommended why the attorney general decided to recommend that this part of the market um, end is because we didn't think it was just limited to a few bad actors or bad apples. Um, what we found when we looked at the data was some of the suppliers that were, were kind of creating what we called the, the hugest consumer loss, the, the largest consumer loss, were suppliers that we didn't necessarily think were um, engaging in these types of marketing practices, but nevertheless, their um, customers were still paying incredibly high rates. Um, and so it's something that really concerned us. So yeah, we, we think that it, it, it's a problem with the structure of the market itself. It's just not set up to benefit individual residential consumers today. And I think, you know, Joey Lee talked a little bit about um, some of the things that suppliers can do that are innovative, like except, you know, with references to smart meters. Um, because smart meters could kind of open up some more avenues for suppliers to provide value-added products. But I would note that as of now, as of today, um, we do not have smart meters in Massachusetts, at least on any sort of any sort of scale. I think maybe individuals here and there might have them, but um, they're not in Massachusetts yet, and there is still a ways to go, I think, until we get there. So as of today, there's still continuing consumer harm. So there's people who are losing a lot of money every month. And it's something that we think needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. So. And I, I know I touched on it briefly, but I agree with Liz. I think it's a, a problem personally. Lou, I guess what I would say is that one thing I noted that Liz did say was that she does not believe that the marketing practices concerns that the attorney general has expressed are prevalent in the entire market. What the, their concern is, or at least as Liz just expressed it and as shown in the reports, is it's really about pricing 
for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part. And their, their view is that there are no benefits beyond pricing that a consumer can achieve in the market. And that is the view that the market doesn't uh, accept. The, the market's view is that there are other benefits like renewables, like energy efficiency product offerings, like um, home warranty products. There are a lot of value added products that consumers can receive from suppliers that aren't available from the electric distribution companies. Thank you. Um, the next, I like the next question. It's a question I had too, which is, is what we're seeing in the Commonwealth similar to what other states are seeing who have restructured? Yes. Who wants to start? Yes, it is very similar. So um, yes and no. Um, I, it depends on what state you're in, for instance. Mm -hmm. Texas is actually a fully restructured market. The, there is no electric distribution company default service provider like there is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts or actually in any other jurisdiction in which uh, retail choice exists, at least on the electric side. And Texas actually has some of the lowest rates uh, that consumers pay. Uh, they have more innovative product offerings that consumers are eligible for because the suppliers have information uh, accessible to them about the consumer's uh, usage of electricity that is broader than what's currently available in the Commonwealth. Um, there are states that have, um, I will say, many states have taken intermediate steps beyond what the AG is calling for, which is the close down of the individual residential market, where they have actually put in place added consumer protections in order to try to uh, affect change in those jurisdictions. And in fact, the DPU, as I said, just uh, put in place additional consumer protections in the Commonwealth as well. I don't have a lot. To, I just was going to say there are, yeah, some additional consumer protections in other states. Like Connecticut has has the billing rates of, correct me if I'm wrong, Liz, the billing mm -hmm. rates of the distribution company, the utility company is on every bill or something. Yeah. There's more information exactly. on every bill. So, they, so you yeah. actually know the price difference um, and we don't have that in Massachusetts. Right, and Connecticut just passed, um, Connecticut just issued an order in the end of 2019 um, prohibiting suppliers from um, enrolling low-income customers, or I should say, hard, they call them hardship customers. They're people that receive some sort of subsidy to help them with their bills. Um, although I don't know if that's been implemented yet. I'm sure there was probably some sort of appeal of that, but yes, that is. Um, other states have been dealing with, with this, New York has issued very extensive orders that go into a lot of the issue that you kind of see the back and forth between Joey Lee and I and Alexa about um, the value added products and whether it's just about price or something else. And New York really dug into that. And I would encourage anybody that wants to read more about it to go and um, you can email me, I'll send you the docket number. It's really interesting because they found that the value that was provided um, by renewable energy content or um, energy efficiency services or any of the other things that Joey Lee mentioned was just not enough to offset the massive consumer losses that they were seeing, that it just wasn't um, sufficient. And that was in the opinion of the Public Service Commission in New York. Um, so I think, you know, it's a debate that, every, that a lot of these states are having um, and it is, it is slightly different, but there's a lot of common issues as well. 
that's and, you know, I'd just like to I'd like to add something to Liz's characterization of the New York order. They actually did approve renewable content products from suppliers and did find that there was value in the renewable content provided by suppliers. And they also said in the proceeding, not that the, the value wasn't sufficient to offset the quote unquote losses, but that there was not sufficient evidence to show that. And so they are allowing suppliers to come in on an individual basis and show the value of the product offerings that they're doing. And in fact, uh, right now in front of the New York Public Service Commission, there's 10 or 15 petitions pending for uh, value added products for their review and consideration. I think I would like, if I could ask you, Joey Lee, I, it's been a while since I read that order. The renewable energy that they that suppliers provide in New York, does it have to be like the local kind of um, their equivalent of meeting RPS, like what we would say RPS one obligation is, which means it's it's kind of a certain level of renewable energy, or can it just be like any kind of wind wreck from any part of the country? Is it is it a specific type? It does not have to meet the renewable portfolio standard, which is called something different in New York, but it doesn't have to meet the, the renewable standards in New York. However, it does have to show deliverability into the New York ISO system. Oh, that's what it was. I knew it was something unique to New York. Yes. Okay. That's, that's actually a really good question to transition on because the next question is about what, what kind of data we have on um, the benefits of energy efficiency and green products that suppliers provide. And I guess New York, it sounds like New York has some data on it. I don't know if other people do, but the question specifically is for green products and energy efficiency members offered by suppliers, do we know how much the emissions have been reduced due to these offers? Like have we quantified any of that? I am not familiar with one-on-one -on -one re emission reduction reviews uh, with respect to that. I think there are, the states have evaluated other things. For instance, in Connecticut, the, the hardship proceeding that Liz was referring to, there is quantification about the value of the green product and the why it justifies a price differential. Um, there's there's pricing, there's information about the value of a Nest thermostat, for instance, et cetera, why all that uh, is appropriate to uh, show price differentiation uh, beyond just how a general market would work. Um, but I am not aware of anything particular on exactly how much emissions have been reduced by consumer choice of green energy or energy efficiency products. Okay, um, I'll keep going. We've been getting a few more in and we'll just keep rolling. Um, what kind of innovative, we talked about uh, the, the kind of products they also offer in some sense, like a Nest uh, thermostat. What kind of innovative products could suppliers offer that are dependent upon having more data on the consumer? So a lot of it is about trying to determine how the consumer uses energy, when the consumer uses energy, et cetera, to provide them product offerings that might be most beneficial to them. For instance, if um, in states like Texas, where there is much more information, there are a lot of different product offerings, things like free nights and weekends, various time of use pricing options, um, beyond the things that I've already talked about with respect to data. And But a lot of that is dependent on saying, okay, Liz, for instance, if she she's always home on the weekends, uh, I'm just making this up, obviously, Liz is always home on the weekends. And so, and that's when she uses the vast majority of her electricity, what would most benefit Liz from a, pro a product perspective? Would it be a free nights and weekends, where basically the only energy used during the day is the what people call vampire energy, right? The your TV still uh, using energy, even though you don't have it turned on, that kind of thing. And so that's the really the having the data and showing how and when customers are using that uh, electricity would allow for additional products. Part of it is without the data, um, it's hard to determine 
what the product offering would look like, but based on the, at least the Texas um, market, we do have some indications of that. Um, okay. Uh, oh, so this next one I think was already touched on a little. Um, I don't know if we have much more to add. Wouldn't the electricity to consumer get be different if the supplier is offering greener energy? Going back to the discussion about whether or not products are similar or different as compared to other industries. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that besides what we've said before. Well, I guess I'm like, trying to understand how to do this quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I think technically the answer is that everybody receives the same electricity because it's all mixed over the wires and delivered. So when you purchase a green product, the green power is not actually delivered to the socket in your home. It is delivered to the it is delivered to the ISO, ISO New England, who controls the transmission uh, system and tells generators when they need to be on, et cetera. It's delivered into the system and it adds green power to the system mix. So it, it basically reduces emissions by having more green power uh, generated and added to the system mix. Um, okay, so. I would, just, I would just add to that, that it's not always the um, green power that you purchase is not always being fed into specifically ISO New England, sometimes it can be fed into other grids, but as long as the person can show that they kind of retired um, a renewable energy certificate that was generated by green power, that's sufficient um, to, to show that it's a green product. It's really technical, but I thought that was important. So you're buying efficiency for the system, regardless of whether it's going into your house. Yeah. Um, so this also is something we touched on, the distinction between the suppliers and marketing. The question is, is the real issue with the suppliers themselves or just the marketing tactics they take? I think that there are consumers who, many of us, right? I get, I'm on the do not call list. Uh, somebody calls my home, I don't, I don't wanna to talk to them. That's just my personal preference. So I think part of it um, has to do with the, the, the type of marketing, right? It is being called upon in your home um, uh, by telephone or at the door um, that can be off-putting to cons some consumers. However, one of the additional issues with the, the way the market is established is that in order for a consumer to sign up for electricity with a supplier, they need their account number. And unlike your driver's license number or your social security number, your birth date or something else, those aren't things that you normally carry around even in your wallet, let alone your head. And so that really, because of the way that it is designed, it promotes uh, having more people interact with consumers at their homes. There have been, and I think the DPU is still considering what's been called enroll with your wallet, which essentially would provide consumers with a way to enroll that would not require them to have their account number, but would be able to rely on something they could find in their wallet. Um, and, you know, like their license, their license, driver's license number, et cetera. It would require changes to policy. It would also require changes to the information the utilities collect about consumers because they don't currently have people's driver's license numbers, for instance. But that is being considered as part of uh, the ongoing proceeding at the Department of Public Utilities. Um, next up, we have a straightforward one. How many competitive suppliers are there in Massachusetts? There are a lot of licensed competitive suppliers. Um, I don't even know how many, but a lot. Um, but our report has shown that the ones who are active are actually issuing bills to customers or charging customers through the utility is around 60, give or take. Um, that was as of early 2019. 
Liz, is that bo uh, both electricity and gas or just electricity? That, that's a good question. No, that's just electricity. And there are more if you look on the gas side, although many suppliers do both electric. Not many suppliers, but there's some suppliers that do both electric and gas. Yeah, and we've sort of been focusing on electricity, but there are comp there's competitive supply of both electricity and gas. Um, yeah. And that's important to right. know. That is true, but I will say that the gas market is not as developed as the electric market for a variety of reasons. Um, many more, there are many more residential customers on electric choice than there are on gas choice mm -hmm. in the country. Yes, that's our well, understanding as well. Maybe playing on that license, be difference between license and active companies. The next question is, what requirements are there on competitive suppliers to be able to do business in Massachusetts? So I suppose that means how do they get licensed? <laughs> Yes, they have, to, they have to apply for a license um, at the Department of Public Utilities. And I think it, you know, it's, um, they just have to provide kind of some basic information. Um, Joey Lee could probably speak better to exactly what those requirements are, but they have to get approval. And once they get approval from the department, then they can go and, and market and sell to consumers. And they have to do that. I believe they have to renew it every year. They do have to sit, submit renewal information every year. Uh, it depends on if they're serving or seeking to serve residential customers or not, the data that they need to provide to the DPU. If they are seeking to serve residential customers, they are required to provide further information uh, about how they'll do their marketing, who will do their marketing, et cetera. And as part of the DPU's order that just came out in right. docket 1907, there will be additional uh, things that will be required as part of the licensing, including having those um, publicly, the license applications made publicly available uh, right. for people to comment on. And it will allow customers, if they hear about somebody that comes to their door or if they just are interested, they can look up the license application online and just get a little bit more background on who that supplier is and, you know, and confirm that they are legitimate. And for regulation, they're subject to the AG's regs and the Consumer Protection Act and... The department has it. its own regulations as well, yeah. Okay, um, the next question is, in my experience from assisting dozens of residents and being offered green options by third-party suppliers, the renewable energy is sourced from outside New England, mostly very cheap and worthless Texas wind wrecks and provides no benefit to mass renewable energy market or to the air we breathe here. It's greenwashing, do the suppliers make it clear where the renewable energy comes from? So I guess the latter part is the, the thrust of it. Do, we, do they have to tell where they get the energy from or that goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago? So there, there are truth and advertising rules, as everyone is aware, and um, the uh, consumers provided with green energy are typically told something about the energy, whether it be that it would be nationwide, etc. I do disagree that there's no benefit to the Northeast from uh, from renewables purchased elsewhere. You know, there's the whole jet stream and the way that, you know, we get uh, air into the into the Northeast and how it gets here and reducing emissions elsewhere in the U.S. does indeed benefit our air environment here in um, in the Commonwealth and in New England. Um, but um, frequently what uh, consumers are told is general information like it would be uh, a nationwide wind product, for instance. That means the wind would be generated somewhere in the nation. It doesn't say that it would be generated in the Commonwealth or even New England. Others, though, do offer, suppliers do offer very specific products that are uh, New England-centric. Um, I'm aware of several. You can go on, the DPU has an Energy Switch website. You can go on and see um, information about uh, supplier offers that are available. 
Okay, um, it's coming up at one o'clock here. So first of all, I wanna to say to everyone watching, um, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. We're glad people are interested. We have about five more questions. If you guys are happy, I'm happy to run through them for the next couple of minutes, but I just wanted to say thank you to people that have to go right at one. And if, if, if any of you guys have to go, um, that's fine as well. Lou, unfortunately, I do have another commitment. I thought so. I'm sorry. I thought that was the case. <laughs> I won't be able to stay. I apologize. I appreciate everyone taking the time to be on and to listen to the varying points of view that we all presented today. I hope you all gained something from it. If you have questions, uh, you can find my information on uh, uh, our firm's website, www.rc.com. I'm sure Liz and Alexa would be happy to answer questions, uh, follow-up questions as well. Thank you so much, Lou, for inviting me to participate. Alexa, Thank you. happy to be on with you. Thank you, Joey Lee. Thank you. I, yeah, I can stay for like five or 10 more minutes, but that's- It shouldn't take longer than that, I don't think. There's only five left here. Um, this is a question about, uh, I have had a competitive supplier knock on my door. He acted in the way that Lexa and Liz described. Has there any effort to give consumers freedom to abandon the contract free and clear if the competitive supplier market made misrepresentations? which I assume is part of your lawsuit, at least in, in the instant case. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there are these pretty big termination fees. Um, it's actually been my experience, Liz, and see if, I'm curious if you disagree with that, that they won't actually go out. I haven't seen consumer, uh, suppliers actually going after consumers for these termination fees after they terminate. They sort of make a half-hearted, they do on the initial phone call terminating service, um, try to get somebody to pay and then, you know, we'll send a letter, but I haven't seen any collection actions um, where somebody has terminated and, and they haven't paid the termination, but some people do pay them. Right. Um, they are um, paying, you know, even if a few consumers pay them, they're big amounts of a hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, there is a right to rescission um, just like any door to door sale, you know, a short right to rescission, what, 72 hour right to rescission, I believe it is, um, under the regs, but that's not very long and, you know, people don't realize. No, so. not one at all. Yeah, it usually takes people like a month to really figure it out. Yeah, it takes a bill or two and it may not show up on the first bill. And it, it bills, it's interesting, do say if somebody has an alternative, a competitive supplier, but nobody looks at their bills. like. I had never noticed that on my bills until I started doing work in this area. Um, you know, it, especially with electronic bills, you just pay it. You just look at the amount and you pay it. You don't look at the rest of it. Like I had no idea what my usage, average usage was or anything like that, or even that a kilowatt hour was how electricity was measured. So um, yeah, even if the information is information as a bill, I don't think um, average consumer is seeing it. So yeah. Um, you know, people do file complaints with the DPU. Occasionally, the DPU tries to mediate in cases, you know, a resolution in cases like this. But um, I have not found DPU's mediation to be hugely helpful in getting folks out of contracts. I would just add that the AGO, um, the card, and which of course now I'm forgetting what that stands for, Consumer Assistance and Response Division. Um, who handles all the incoming complaints, they will mediate some similar complaints, just like um, Alexa said. So they'll call the supplier and try to get, you know, the, the customer out of the contract without a termination fee. But no, there's no kind of like broad, you know, um, rule that says that that can happen, unfortunately. So 
Um, the next one's a basic question about structure. How do how does municipal aggregation relate to suppliers? And I know we don't want to get totally into municipal aggregation, but I don't know if there's a short answer. Um, the municipal aggregation is um, a supplier. A, muni a municipality aggregates, and the people in charge of that municipality will contract on behalf of the municipality with a supplier. So at that, we we distinguish it because there. It's a town who's likely hired counsel. They are a sophisticated entity negotiating contract with a supplier, as opposed to an individual who isn't going to be negotiating a contract. Right? They're just going to sign whatever is put in front of them. So it's a it's a very different situation. But they are it, the municipal aggregations are going to suppliers to get their energy. And I think to clarify, just another kind of add to that is our basic service that we get from utilities are also from suppliers. It's just purchased in bulk by the utility on our behalf and then passed through to us. Because as Joey Lee said in the beginning, the utilities do not generate electricity anymore. So all the supply that comes through our electricity, our electric lines is ultimately purchased from a supplier. And to clarify, the problems you guys have been talking about um, trend more towards the individual supply issue yeah. as opposed to aggregated. Am I right? Exactly. Yeah, we, the issues we're talking about does not have to do with municipal aggregation. And uh, oftentimes municipal aggregation rates are lower than the utility rates because it's the way that it, it is uh, negotiated. Like technically, I am a part of municipal aggregation. Um, for now, anyway, my rates are lower than they would be with Eversource. Okay. Um, does the new DPU order regulate or provide penalties if the third-party supplier implies they are calling from the utility, either verbally or on the call via false caller ID? I don't believe that it addresses it, and I can't be, be sure because it, um, it is a long order. I don't think that it's addressed. I would say that technically that's already a violation of 93A. Um, and that's a violation of our regulations and the Attorney General regulations, 940 CMR 19. So there really doesn't need to be any further order on that because it's already very clear that that is illegal and you can be penalized under 93A for that if proven. Um, how do suppliers prove that they purchase green energy in addition to the required RPS obligation? Do they have to prove where it comes from or can they sell us Iowa wind and claim it's doing the energy? So a little variation on the last one, like what's their burden to show where it is, even if they have to be truthful? How do we know they're telling the truth? I, um, I know only a little bit about this piece, but I will say that I believe they have to file um, reports every year with DOER, Department of Energy Resources who um, basically just ensures that they are purchasing the requisite amount of um, uh, RECs to satisfy their RPS obligation. But I think they also have to show where they're getting their other RECs from. Maybe they don't. I wish I could like phone a friend here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. <laughs> no, oh, because I don't work in a, yeah, I don't look at that. No, I actually, you know, with the voluntary stuff, I don't know if they have to show that. Um, and I might be getting a help right now. They don't have to show, that's right. They don't have to show voluntary recs. Um, thank you, Elizabeth. Um, so, so, yeah. So, so, it is, so the requirement that they, they do truth in advertising is sort of a soft requirement because we don't have necessarily the data to, to, to establish it if we need to? Right, there's no, they, there's, there's no one that requires that they, that they kind of report to them. There's nobody to oversee that or nobody that technically has. I assume the DPU could have the authority if they wanted to do that, but at this point, that's, yeah. 
that's not being done. Great. Okay, uh, down to the last two. Um, has the AG investigated whether the representations by green suppliers are accurate? Are the green competitive suppliers actually procuring renewable power? So again, I guess that's the same question, but you know, sort of not where it's coming from. Is it even green at all or is it totally made up? Is there any way to check on that? I don't know. I mean, I think we could do that through our civil investigative power, um, but I won't, I'm not really able to discuss um, issues under investigation. Okay, um, last one. In your experience, are competitive energy suppliers pushing different issues when marketing in different neighborhoods? For example, emphasizing green energy in white wealthy neighborhoods and price savings in majority minority neighborhoods? Good question. I honestly am not, that's a great question. I would love to know more about that. I do not know the answer. Yeah, neither do I. I will say price savings definitely is being pushed in minority low-income neighborhoods. I don't know what is happening in wealthier neighborhoods. I don't, as much marketing is happening at all in wealthier neighborhoods, to tell you the truth. I think it's mostly targeting low-income neighborhoods versus different messaging in other places. Like if you look at the AG report, um, a much, a disproportionate share of this market is low-income folks. And I think there's, there's a very um, important reason, which is those are the being, people being targeted. And they're not si signing up for like green energy. They're usually signing up to save money because they're looking to reduce their utility bills. Well, thank you guys for sticking around um, a few extra minutes and thank everybody for having all those questions. That was a really great set of questions, um, really a lot of active questions. Um, so I appreciate everyone for coming. Thank you for attending. I, I believe there'll be a link up to this for people that missed it or part of it that you can follow afterwards. And um, unless you guys have any final thoughts, I think we can say goodbye. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lou. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And like Joey Lee said, feel free to reach out. Um, yes. Yeah. Any questions? Yeah. Okay. Have a good day, everybody. Bye, everyone.